Let's pray together. Almighty God, whose Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, is the light of the world, grant that your people, illumined by your word and sacraments, may shine with radiance of Christ's glory, that he may be known, worshipped, and obeyed to the ends of the earth, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns one God now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, today we get to talk about uh, authority. And this for us, uh, you know, Western kind of people, authority is something we really don't like. We like our independence. For rugged West Virginians, for rugged Appalachian culture, we really like our independence. We really don't like people telling us what to do. We want to do what we want to do, how we want to do it. We were just in Virginia for the last few days for our regional retreat, and while we were there, I guess yesterday, they had a rally at their uh, state capitol because of the uh, Second Amendment issue. And uh, I I don't think we're going to have that issue here in West Virginia. Uh, I don't think... I don't think we're going to need to rally. I just don't think that's really going to happen. We're, we're rugged individualists. And so we don't really like authority. I, I wanted to share a couple of quotes with you. And so I, I searched for some and they're like a zillion quotes on doubting authority. So this is something we kind of have ingrained in us and then we're encouraged to do. Ben Franklin said, it is the first responsibility of every citizen to question authority. Okay, given the context, thinking about government and government overreach and government uh, ruling and running your lives, so you want to you want to question that authority, and that's what helps keep it straight. Okay, good enough. But it's very popular to question, like all authority, all the time. But sometimes this can backfire on you. Now, I wouldn't normally quote uh, this person in my sermon, but it seemed appropriate for this. Susan Sarandon, that's a an actress. And I don't find her in many of my commentaries, but she said, that's the thing about independently-minded children. You bring them up and teaching them to question authority, and you forget that the very first authority that they question is you. We've, since starting the church, meeting in small groups and what have you, we've met you know, lots of people, and we would have, we've had people in our midst who took pride in questioning or doubting authority. And for all kinds of different reasons, people can have issues when it comes to authority levels. This, that's Roger. Uh, Kirk, Kirk's got him. We're good. It just sounds like there's a trash truck backing up. <laughs> um, yeah, like, what am I saying? I have no idea. Um, this 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 thing of of uh, dealing with people inside the church in our in our in our own congregation who for some reason in their past they've been shaped or formed or hurt so much so that the idea of doubting it, it comes from it, it moves from questioning authority to doubting authority. And that's an easy, it's an easy move. I, I understand, I think Ben, Ben, why, why I think both of these quotes are healthy quotes. I, I think if we're going to teach our children to be questioning and doubting authority, we got to really understand that they're going to question and doubt us. That, that's their first place. Is that what we want to teach them? Or do we want to teach them that I've got their best interests at heart 
Okay, no, not everybody does. But for my children, I want you to understand uh, that I have your best interest at heart. For you, my people, I want you to understand I have my best, your best interest at heart. That doesn't make me perfect. Should you be a Berean and study what I say and hold it against the scriptures? Those answers are yes. But like, should you come with your guard up to doubt everything I say because of some hurt you've had in your past? I would just venture to say no. Why? Because it's not you who has approved your leader. There have been people, numerous people, that were, we, I don't just, in our, in our tradition, we don't get to just show up and say, here I am. Uh, I'm now a, a pastor, I'm now a prophet or a, an apostle, and I'm then start expounding the word. No. We have a very long and slow process to be trained in. And so there should be something where even with our hurts and our baggage that we have, we should be in a position where we come and say, okay, I'm going to give this guy the benefit of the doubt and I'm going to test it against scripture. And the other goofy things that he says, I can, I can let go. But I don't want to be in a position where I just have to doubt everything he says. As we move into this lesson, we got to understand, this, and let me put this back into context of, of where we are, and if you, you can just look in your Bibles at 19, and it says triumphal, triumphal entry. Jesus showed and demonstrated his authority when he entered the city. He entered the city on this unridden donkey colt, and the people were thrilled to see him come. The people were much on his side. This is the last, we're going to be in the last week of his life for whatever, the remainder, and it, it's, it's, we're going to be there for a long time. Because a large portion of Luke's gospel has been, the gospels are dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. His triumphal entry is when he comes into Jerusalem. He had set his face like flint to, on Jerusalem. He's coming. He came, and he came on this donkey colt, and the people saw that he came, and they said, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is, this is what they were shouting. And then the elders of Israel, like, tried to get him to make his people be quiet. They're, they're like, this is not, this is not good. Please make your people be quiet. And he says to the elders, if they were to be quiet, even these stones would cry out. They would cry out in praise, because in Romans 8 it talks about all creation is groaning for the day of redemption. All nature and all human, uh, human pe- you know, all people are anxious and excited for this day of redemption. So they're, they're crying out. He showed this deliberate and significant authority as he entered. Then he comes into the temple. That's what we covered last week. And uh, we looked at the sovereign entering his temple and reclaiming it for the purposes of what the temple was for. So that uh, he, he turned over the tables and... Did, you know, did away with the money changers and, and that outer court to the Gentile court, which was meant to be used to evangelize the Gentiles. He, he reclaimed the sovereign, the one whose temple it is, came and entered the temple in a very authoritative manner and took his temple back to, so that it could be used for its right purposes. Today, as this passage comes next, after the temple and after the, uh, triumphal entry, we see the, re- the rejection of Jesus' authority leads to destruction. This is significant. It, it's significant for us people who don't like authority. 
the rejection of Jesus' authority leads to destruction. So the first thing we're going to see in this passage is that Jesus' authority is questioned. And there can be some healthy thing in here, but it can go too far, too. So look with me, if you will. We're in you know, chapter 20, and we're in verse 1. It says, One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and pre- was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, is where I quit, but i got to jump off here. So in, in, last, uh, in the, that last week of Jesus' life, where he's taken over the temple, there is a period of time in which he's able to sit in the temple and teach. So he's reclaimed this temple, now he's sitting in it and teaching. It's, this this verse 1 says that he was teaching the people and preaching the gospel. So we talked about how um, last week that outer court being used as it was and abused as it was was prohibiting the Gentiles from receiving the grace of God. So what we're seeing now is that's cleared out and he, Jesus, the King, the, you know, the, the high priest of the temple is here. The one who is really the temple is now doing the teaching. And so he's teaching and preaching the gospel. And earlier when we began Luke, now that was a long, long, long time ago, um, but we, near the beginning of Luke, there's a passage where he enters the town, goes into the temple and teaches and people are amazed because he taught as one who had authority. So they were amazed. His authority came from the person of who he is. It came from his his sovereign reign. We had that, that dual nature thing that he's fully God and fully man. So he comes to proclaim his word. He's quite able to do that. And his And his authority seems to be something significantly different than what these people had been used to. This scene is something else, this one that we're in right now. Jesus comes to town, he comes into the temple, tips over these tables, uh, out in the court of the Gentiles, and now Jesus is sitting in the place of the teacher in the temple. Now, we know, we, you know, some of, some of us are familiar with this, and we know this, and so we're thinking, oh, it's not necessarily a big deal. But the, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they have a question for him. Well, I can understand why they might have a question for him. This is unusual. We'd have questions too. We show up here on Sunday morning. Somebody just rolls into the church, removes me, and they take the place of the teacher. You know, I'm hoping some of you might say, what the heck? What'd you do with Jim? Who gives you, what gives you the right? Who gives you the right? What, what, uh, by what authority do you take this action? So that's kind of what's going on here. And we'll expound on that in just a second. Well, they respond uh, to him with a question. So he's teaching, they come to him, and then they said, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, which is it's a funny way of answering. He says, it says he answered them. I will ask you a question. Now tell me, 
Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, this is an interesting, I mean, y'all, y'all, y'all get like arguments like from your brothers and sister days or, uh, or, or whatever. Maybe your those arguments with spouses are typically never fun to look back on. From kids and being spouses, you're like, you gotta find your tricks in order to win the arguments. The thing this is showing us is you don't get in a little word battle with King Jesus. This is, this is kind of funny when we understand this thing. It's like, he's teaching. They say, why are you doing that? Who gave you the right? Who gave you the authority to do that? He says, well, let me ask you a question about John. What's that have to do with anything? And, and then they don't know how to answer him. They're very, they're, very, they're very confused in how to answer because they're looking to win the game. And they, they see that we laid out this thing. We want to get you in a trap. And, and we already don't like you, so we want to get you in a trap. But now you have given us something that's got us like in this maze that we can't get out of. We don't understand how to get out of here. And, and Jesus' response in that where he says, let me, well, it's where the, our text says, and he answered them, and then it's a question. He answers with questions all the time. And typically when we get to that, I, I suggest to us that we should answer people more often with questions than answers. Sometimes when people ask me questions, I think they're actually looking for the answer. So I just give them an answer. Because I think we should be done and I'm ready to move on. Let me find some coffee. Sometimes it's really best to ask more questions. Because the answer I'm giving them may be an answer to the question they ask. They may just actually be asking the wrong question. So you want to ask some questions when somebody asks you a question. My lovely wife, Becky, she loves to say, What's the real question? You ask her a question, and, you know, whatever, maybe there's a little back and forth. She, she just doesn't get very far down the road, and she's like, well, what, what's the real question? I'm like, I thought I asked the real question. And, you know, sometimes you just can't win, so we then somehow figure out to move on. Um, this, this authority that Jesus showed was so significantly different. These people were used to this derived authority. We've talked about this before. They got their authority from someone else. If they're teaching, which we do this a lot, we we reference, we we understand that um, the revelation of God's word doesn't just show up in me. Thanks be to God, and you all are thankful. You know me well enough. You're thankful that. But but there are saints for about oh two thousand years who have gone before us who have thoughts on Scripture. How do we keep me in some sort of Guide, guardrails, borderlines. How do I, how do I color sort of within these bounds if, uh, if, if I'm just relying on myself? I tell people when they've had a great, unique thought of scripture, I say, you know, very gently like I would, that if the Lord is showing you something new in scripture that he hasn't shown the church over the last 2,000 years, chances are good you might be a heretic. So we, we, we operate in a derived authority. 
they operated in a derived authority. When they would teach, they would say, Rabbi so-and-so said such-and-such. Rabbi so-and-so said such-and-such. And so their authority was derived, and it was very obvious. But Jesus, when he would teach, he, he would say, you've heard it said thus-and-such, but I say to you, you're like, wait, what, who are you to say these things? Well, he's God Almighty is who he is. This is what's perplexing these people. He spoke on his own authority without referencing those teachers prior to him. So that these folks are now stuck between a rock and a hard place. Everyone believed that John the Baptist was a prophet. And that prophet had been sent from God. They, people did not doubt this. In the days of John the Baptist, these same leaders went out to see him. They're like, what's all this hubbub going on over here with this guy named John? So they go out to see him. They see that he's baptizing for uh, the remission of sins, but they don't get baptized themselves. So this this is a this is a bit of a problem they have. So what are how are they going to answer um, Jesus if if they if they say yes he was from heaven. Yes, he was uh, uh, from God. Then the natural question to the follow-up is, well, then why didn't you also get baptized? Why didn't you believe him and follow through? And I think that's a really good question for them. But they wanted to act like they didn't know. So here's the other thing. If they are the spiritual leaders in Israel... And say he's not from God, but he's somebody from man. So you think you're following a prophet. These people who are under your charge are going out and listening to John and they're being baptized. This, this, this thing is very convicting to these uh, leaders. And, and this group of leaders could be called the Sanhedrin. They, they don't know what to say. And they're, and they're just stuck. The idea that if you are going to go follow a false prophet, a false one, so if he's from man, he's really not from God, he's really not a prophet, and he's a false prophet, well, I'm going to tell you. I will be held accountable if I don't tell you. So, part of a beef with the church sometimes is we say too many negative things or we pick on people who write lame books or whatever. Well, we, we, okay, the objective of the pastor is not to pick on people who write lame books. It's to warn about false prophets. And if there's somebody out there preaching a different gospel, according to Paul, he says they should be anathema. They should, they should be put away with. We just say, don't read that book. And then it gets into a big uh, battle with us, because who are you to say I shouldn't read this book? Well... We don't want you to be led astray by a false prophet, a false teacher. They, these people are stuck. If they say he's from man, then why didn't you tell them? If they say he's from Jesus, if you say he's from God, if he's from heaven, then why didn't you believe him? And they knew that they didn't ordain. With, you know, people didn't just, you, again, you didn't just show up and become a rabbi. You didn't just show up in those days and become a priest. Somebody had to approve you, just like what we talked about. They knew they hadn't approved. They knew they hadn't laid hands on. They knew they didn't ordain John or Jesus. 
So they, I, there's a sense in which their question is good, but what they're doing here when they say, eh, well, I don't know. This is this word game again, and that's where Jesus says, well, I, okay, fine. I'm not going to tell you either then. I think that's funny. But the, what they're doing is lying. See, they knew. They knew that John was a prophet sent from God. But they didn't want to color themselves bad, so they uh, said, well, we just don't know. They knew he was from God, and if and if John uh, and, if, and if John wasn't from God, then they needed to confront him, and they needed to tell the people. But they didn't. So Jesus then turns from um, the elders to the crowd. So that Jesus is teaching in the temple. When Jesus is teaching, people were there. So there's this crowd that has gathered, and then the, this scene shows the elders showing up and asking this question. And he's addressed them, just back and forth with questions. And now he turns his attention and his conversation from the elders to the crowd. And so this is where Jesus' authority is rejected, is what he's describing. And he describes it as he does in these parables. So he tells a story. So begin in verse 9, if you will. It says, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out at the tenants, and went into another country for a long while. That's problematic. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So Jesus tells this parable to indict those leaders, the religious leaders. And he does so very effectively. So here in the temple, probably in the shadow right behind Jesus, you know, you look at me, you see stuff behind me. Chances are very good here as you're looking at Jesus, as these people, the crowd who Jesus is talking to, as they're looking at Jesus as he's teaching, they're seeing pillars. And upon these pillars are uh, formed and shaped, uh, molded grapevines. There's this, Ill, there's this um, picture of Israel, the Israel of God, the people of God, are the vineyard of God. And there are multiple passages that show this, and then they embrace this. This is, this is just, you know, it's kind of like in our world we can say mountain state and everybody knows what we're talking about. To some other people, we don't, they don't know whether we're even near Richmond or whatever, but we can say mountain state and they know what we're talking about. In this world, you could say, the vineyard of God, and they know you're talking about the people of God being Israel. So we're really not talking about grapes, and we're really not talking about vines, and we're not really not talking about leaves. We're talking about people and who they belong to as God. And this is so known. And, and this imagery is in the temple. 
So this was a known thing that this is where they're going to be. Jesus tells a story in front of this vine, and these people understand the analogy he's using, and it is um, harsh. It is harsh. In this parable, the man that planted the vineyard, that that man is God. This this is why this this is where this picture is coming together. So again, if he's not really talking about a vineyard, if he's not really talking about grapes, what's he talking about? He's talking about the people of God. They're, the people of God were planted by whom? God. God is the the man that planted the vineyard. When we're in verse nine, the vineyard is Israel. And then the tenant farmers were Israel's leaders. Israel's leaders were to tend and form and shape the people of Israel and help them. There, there are analogies here or, or uh, correlations to actually man's first role, man and woman's first role in the Garden of Eden. They're to, they're to obey and keep God's word. They were to tend the garden. They were to tend the garden by obeying and keeping God's word. And here, they're um, keeping the vineyard by obeying and keeping God's word. And they're, they're to be nurturing and caring people for the people of Israel. The servants in this parable, those who it's, where it says there were servants that were sent, the three of them, and they were both, or all three beat and sent uh, out of the place. Those were the prophets. Those stand for the prophets of God, who God sent to the people of Israel, and the, and Israel killed all their prophets. And of course, the Son, the Son is Jesus. So God entrusted His authority of, uh, to the leaders of Israel to tend to the people of Israel. It was to tend and care. But whereas, where I said it was problematic in verse nine, where it says that He He did this and then He was gone for a while. This absent thing. Do you all remember the? Uh, the scene where Moses goes up on the mountain, and while he while he's gone, and they knew he was gone, they knew he was going to the mountain to talk to God. What, what was the problem? He's gone too long. He's gone too long. We we need we we need we need our God, and we want Him now. So, how about y'all throw in the jewelry and let's melt it down and make a golden calf, and this will represent that God. When we read that from our eyes, there's just so much I just can't understand or relate to. But the problem was he was gone for too long for these people. We've, we've talked recently about our, our, our uh, desire for instant gratification. And delayed gratification is, is, is a hard and slow thing to work for. And it's too many times for us feeble people, the objectives that we're trying to reach for this, in this delayed gratification, they're too, they're, they're, it's too long, it's too far away. And we can't imagine it. So in the here and in the now, we will sell our birthright for a bowl of chili. We couldn't deal, they couldn't deal with the fact that God was gone. So this tender, loving care that they were to have for their people in this uh, period where God is absent from them, it changed. And it changed from tender care to abusive power. And that's, that's how the leaders of Israel were now operating. And as time went by, they no longer saw themselves as stewards caring for the people, but that the people of Israel belonged to them. The leaders then exert more and more authority, and they think that they are the owners. 
And in the spiritual nature, don't we really do this the same way? What struck me is, if we experience an absence of God, and we can do that by, uh, you know, ignoring His Word, we can do that, we can do that in a whole host of ways, we can do that by dabbling in sin, we can do that by ignoring His Word, we can do that by ignoring His people, we can do that in a very subtle way because we got a new job and it takes us away from our, the people of God on Sundays. But if we experience this absence of God in our lives, where His presence is not significant, it's not real to us, and, and here's and here's a here's here's my thing about the the people who are Christians that don't go to church. This, this is this picture. If you're not in a place where we can be, we're so forgetful. And I, I tell you about how forgetful I am all the time. As I get older, it gets worse, and I've hit my head too many times. And I know I'm a mess, but so are you. We, the people of God, are forgetful. That's why we need the gospel over and over and over and over again. So if we're not among the people of God, if we're not under the word of God, and we have this absence of God, what happens? Well, we forget that we are not our own. We think that we are our own property. We forget that we have been purchased with a price. We forget that this loving God purchased us for a price. And so we kind of take back these things that we have given over to God. And this goes in increments, typically. And as we lose interest in the things of God, I had a guy, one time I, we were in a Bible study and a guy, I don't know, we had a hard, we had a hard uh, passage and he didn't like it and he left. Um, I think, I, I think he left. He may have left, I mean, like in the middle of our stay. And, uh, I may be confusing two people, but I think that's right. But whatever, nobody knows this anyway, so. But, but the guy, a guy leaves because he's aggravated at what the Bible said and our interpretation because we were just reading it and we thought it said what it said. We really weren't reading anything into it. Didn't like what it said, didn't like our interpretation, didn't feel lifted up that day. So quits coming. And then messages me later, probably, you know, emails. Um, this was back after smoke signals, but before texting. Um, and he emailed and said, um, yeah, I, uh, I haven't been in a long time, and I haven't missed it. And I haven't missed it. The story of the coals, you know, the, the coal of the fire, you take it away, it cools down, you put it back in among the coals, and it heats up. It's a great illustration. We do this. We do this. If, if, if for some reason you, something comes up and you get to a point where you can't come to church or don't come to church or won't come to church, how long would it take before you get to the point where, man, I don't miss it? This is who we are. It's how we're made. But we forget that we've been bought with a price and that we are not our own. We want to take possession as these leaders of the people of Israel wanted to see them as their possession. They are no longer stewards. They want to see them as their possession. We do the same thing for ourselves. We want to take back. We want to control. We want to do what we want to do, how we want to do it. And we don't recognize even that this absence from God led us into these things. So this parable is this allegory is what's happening in the real time in Jesus' day. 
So the Messiah had been anticipated for centuries. They've been talking about him. Prophets, these prophets that have been sent to Israel who have been chopped up and, and uh, you know, killed, they came to Israel saying there's going to be a Messiah coming. Jesus, the Messiah, comes to his people and his people do, did, did not know him. They didn't recognize him. The, so the Lord says in this parable, the, the, the Father says, Okay, I sent the prophets and they, and they uh, beat them badly. Reality killed them. So perhaps I should send my son, who maybe these people would respect, maybe they would have compassion on. So the son is an heir to the vineyard and a joint owner, therefore. And there's this deal where if, if the landowner abandoned land, and like, so he's using an agricultural term, and he's back in the real day, real time, he's talking about his real thing, so there's this thing where it's pointing to something else, but he's talking about a real thing, and if this land stays vacant from its owner, and the owner doesn't visit it long enough, it becomes vacant and it can be reclaimed. So there's, there's a piece of this, these people who are li- listening to Jesus, seeing the vine, remembering they're the vineyard, they're hearing and putting this all together, that if he, if, if he sends his son and the son comes and they receive and accept him, then the heir, rightful heir to the vineyard is in place. But in this separation thing that where God hasn't been present and they've forgotten whose they were and the fact that they were stewards, um, that's not that in the story that Jesus is telling in this parable. That's not how they receive him. They receive him and they say, "Oh, this we see this as a threat. We don't want him to have the place. Therefore, let's kill him." And they plotted to kill him. This is probably Tuesday of this last week of his life. So this is a prophetic uh, utterance of Jesus to say, "This is what's going to happen to me. This is what's happening to me right now and you." But, you know, it's, it's not just bad for Jesus because it goes on to explain what's going to happen to them. They can't recognize the Messiah in their presence, whom they had been promised for centuries. So, um, in order to maintain control, they wanted to kill him. Charles Spurgeon had this great quote. He says, uh, if you reject him, Jesus, if you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him... He bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. That's just fantastic. And, you, and, and we're in this word game and nobody can figure out how to get out. Well, okay, and then this, the bigger game that this word game's a part of about killing Jesus, what would happen if you kill him? What happens when you, when you reject him? He responds with tears. If you kill him, his blood is shed and he then brings cleansing. Kill him, bury him. He resurrects. He, he, through the resurrection, he then is now this alive and well and reigning and ruling. It's like there's no stopping. Just like in that conversation, there's no getting out of it. This is awesome. Well, so the Sanhedrin at this point, as they're hearing this and they're feeling indicted by his story and they can almost sense that the crowd is turning against him, they respond. And so they say, surely not. 
Surely not. They knew who, they was, who he was talking about. So Jesus turns his address from the crowd again back to the Sanhedrin in 17. It says, but he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone, the true and perfect stone to align the walls as the new temple is being built. It's being compared to Jesus. This this cornerstone is going to set the pattern so that the walls will be true when it's laid up. But this cornerstone is rejected. And then the Bible tells us that the cornerstone is rejected will become the capstone. And the, so Jesus is the, Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the capstone for the eternal temple. Jesus is the new temple. This is what the authority of Jesus looks like. How he comes to save and utilizing his authority. So then rejection leads to destruction. Verse 18 says, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Then verse 19, The scribes and chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they're still conniving, but they're not ignorant. They heard the word, they felt the indictment, but they couldn't act because they feared the people. You can't just kill the son who Jesus said that was what's going to happen. You can't just do that right now or the people will turn on you. This is the authority of Jesus. He will be the stone that people stumble on and fall on or he will return and crush them as he returns in judgment. For those who reject the Christ and his redeeming work as our Messiah... They will fall in judgment. What you do with Jesus matters. He is not a good option among many. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And I tell you from time to time in that verse, and there's like, a I don't know, one or two others, that they're like peaks of icebergs. People say, Oh, you're, you're cherry picking verses when you say that, when you want to talk about, you know, God is a mountain, there are several different roads, you can get there and all these different roads, all these world religions, they're all equally valid and all they want us to do is be good. And you pull that verse out and people can argue with you and say, yeah, you're, you're pulling that out of context. Reality is those are like the peaks of icebergs where under the waters there's like this mass of ice. Well, that's the mass of, that, that mass of ice are, is the rest of scripture. This is that same thing. This, this is that same thing. And it's saying that there is this exclusivity of Christ, that meaning Christ is the only way to God, is real. And if, and if it were not real, he would tell us so. He is, he is the way, the truth, the life. He's the gate. He's the door. He is the way to access the Father. Only through his atoning work may we enter the presence of God. This is what our lessons tell us over and over and over again. He is also that stone of judgment that will uh, fall on all who reject him. Those will be crushed by his judgment when he returns. So, for us, may we pursue him in thanksgiving for his everlasting mercy, and cling to Jesus, 
who is mighty to save and worthy of all our praise, adoration, and devotion. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.